0: in july this year ministers and elders from every presbyterian church in new south wales will come together to convene the general assembly of 2023 one of the most pressing matters to be discussed again is the debate on women elders specifically the vote to restrict the office of eldership to males only The current debate has been on the table since 2019, but many will be surprised to discover that the debate is actually over 70 years old. In this season, season four of More Than A Cake Stall, we're going to consider the history of women elders within the Presbyterian Church of Australia and the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. With a little help from past and present assembly delegates, clerks, moderators, ministers and elders, We hope to better understand how the courts of the Church have engaged this issue over the last 70 years, and in doing so, find the answer to the question, how did we get here? We finished our last episode with Union, which was actually the division of the Presbyterian Church of Australia. Today we're going to glide through the 80s and into the turbulent 90s. But for the sake of focusing on just the matter of inclusion of women to the eldership, we're going to have to bypass some really prominent adjacent issues. The reversal of the ordination of women in 91 and the heresy charge against Peter Cameron in 93. I wish I had the time to go through these two historic movements in more detail because I think they really significantly impact our Presbyterian church culture in New South Wales, both in the way women experience church and in the tone we employ when we debate what we now call the women's issue. Maybe that's an article for the website once this season wraps up. But I also want to acknowledge that, for the most part, the men and women I mention in this and future episodes are battle-weary On both sides of the debate, there is a lot of pain, a lot of grief, and still open wounds. I'm trying to tread carefully as we study their lived experiences, which have, for better or worse, shaped the culture of our denomination today. So, what happened after union? At the PTC Melbourne Ministers' Conference of 2004, Reverend Bob Thomas explained that the crisis that faced the Presbyterian Church after union was twofold. Firstly, its continued existence. And secondly, what that existence would look like. He explains the dilemma. Would the Presbyterian Church of Australia get back to its roots and be evangelical and reformed? Or would it be a moderate, traditional type of Presbyterian church? The only valid reason for us to continue was to get back to our roots and be evangelical and reformed. So that crisis was upon us almost straight away. So the remaining Presbyterians, those from the reformed and evangelical camp, got to work in earnest to reform the church and purify her theology. I'm sure that happened in the day-by-day preaching and ministry of the church, but also, most tangibly, through the courts of the church. How did they do it? Thomas explains. How did we do it? We did engage in serious prayer. We used to have regular monthly prayer meetings in various manses and would pray for the whole situation of the church. We became very serious in our study of the scriptures and of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Older ones mentored younger ones. We had help from the Sydney Diocese, We learned to support one another and back up one another. If one of our younger men was under attack by the old guard, one of us would get up to defend him and deflect the attack. We broke the gerrymandering that the traditionalists had in the assembly and we waited on the Lord's timing. We made decisions regarding positions on committees, boards and positions in the church. This was serious work. We see their persistence in the minutes of both the state and federal assemblies, especially through the 90s. The denomination attempted to make a stand on many significant theological issues, including the incompatibility of the Masonic Temple with the Gospel and the Presbyterian response to the charismatic movement that was growing in Sydney. But the most persistent opposition was directed towards the inclusion of women in the formal offices of the church. Confusion reigned over whether the states or federal assembly had powers over the office of eldership. When the GAA opened up eldership to women in 1967, most of the states followed her lead. But now, as these states attempted to restrict women from eldership, it seemed unclear if they had the power to do so. In 1984, the General Assembly of the Prezi Church in Queensland rescinded their decision to include women in the Eldership. But then, in 1985, members of the PCQ petitioned the GAA, asking them to rescind the 1984 PCQ decision to rescind their previous decision to include women in the Eldership. Did you get that? In 1969, the PCQ said yes to women Elders. In 1984, the PCQ said no to women Elders. In 1985, members of the PCQ asked the General Assembly of Australia to tell the PCQ, you must have women Elders. But the GAA could not act on the matter because the basis of union, we'll learn more about that a little later in the episode, expressly put Eldership in the governance basket. That is, a matter for the states. This is important because it's going to come up again and again and again further down the track. But for now, what you need to remember is that the GAA, the Federal Assembly, is concerned with issues of doctrine. And the State Assembly, issues of governance. The 1985 GAA received two other overtures regarding the formal offices of the church and so they formed an ad hoc committee called Office in the Church to consider them. The committee returned to the Assembly three years later, explaining that because of the diverse range of opinions held by the committee members, the committee had to put out six different papers on the matter. Reverend Bruce Christian, who convened the committee, explained, The replies received reflect exactly the same diversity of opinion which exists among the members of the committee, One thing is clear, every individual or group holding strongly to a particular viewpoint does so from what is believed to be an obvious, biblical, theological, historical and or legal perspective. The prospects of arriving at a consensus on any one of the issues are very slim and would remain so even after a considerably longer and more detailed debate. At least, this seems to be so in the present climate of the church. Threatening the peace of the church. Threatening the peace of the church. That's how Bruce ended the report. This matter was clearly dividing the church, not simply tearing it down the middle as Union did, but threatening to fragment it into pieces. In 1988, there were three separate overtures related to women's ordination. The results which were finalised in 91. The Assembly Clerk received communications from the Federal PWA and local church sessions, who encouraged the Assembly to put the debate on women's ordination aside for the sake of unity and to focus on evangelism. These two communications created the impression of a dichotomy, either get your theology straight or do evangelism. The 1988 GAA clearly separated out women's ordination to word and sacrament, from women's ordination to the Eldership, ensuring that they now had the power to make the decision on ordination. The Minutes recall, the Assembly declares that ordination of women to the Ministry of Word and Sacrament is a doctrinal matter and appoint a committee to prepare an overture on the matter before the Assembly. You see, in the debate, some proponents for women's ordination argued that as presbyteries ordained ministers, the matter could only be decided at the presbytery level. Some argued that it was a governance issue and therefore a matter for state assemblies. And so the 88 GAA took it on themselves to declare that ordination was a doctrinal matter and therefore determined at the Federal Assembly. Before we move into the 90s, we need to make one last stop in the 80s, this time at the 1988 General Assembly of New South Wales, where a report was presented by the Committee on the Spiritual Condition of the Church, who had spent three years encouraging frank discussion amongst its own members and requested information from people who, through their experience, are able to make informed statements. Their report is heartbreaking. It reads, It would be impossible to deny that discord and bitterness exist in our church and that these sins are hampering the proclamation of the gospel and the upbuilding of the people of God. But it is not correct to say that these faults have rendered the church totally ineffective. They also identified that Some of the potent sources of unrest that were identified were A. The experience of church union, which taught people to think in a political fashion. B. That having experienced the trauma of division, it was easier for people to face division again. And C. The opinion has been expressed that division in the courts of the church is much more common than it was in the past. The politicisation of the courts of the church reveal an underlying trauma, which stems from union, a trauma that almost created a level of indifference to division in the church. The division was more entrenched than previously experienced and more intense. It's important that at this end of the debate we remember the discord and bitterness, the grief and heartache experienced by the men and women who went ahead of us and the context in which their decisions were made. At the 91 GAA, the Federal Assembly were ready to make a once and for all decision about the ordination of women to the word and sacrament. The Assembly began and an urgent question was raised. Was the political division that had become so entrenched in the courts of the Church preventing the Church from doing important gospel work? The outgoing moderator thought so. In his opening address, he denounced that the church had spent so much time fighting over secondary issues. I believe that the issues which have caused such polarization in the church in recent years are of secondary importance, and that the church needs to concentrate on matters of primary importance, prayer and evangelism. My prayer is that the Lord will bring us to a common mind so that the church may be empowered by his spirit for her task. However, despite the things which at present are hindering our effective witness, I believe that there is great cause for optimism. I've invited the Reverend Bruce Christian, whose reports I've already quoted several times in this episode, to help shed some light on the struggle the Church faced. Bruce, with the gift of hindsight, do you agree with Stubbs' assessment that the debates of secondary importance hindered the effective witness of the Presbyterian Church?
1: Yes, I, I think Alan Stubbs is 100% right. I'm in agreement with what he says. The problem is, how do we solve this problem? Like We all agree that this is a massive problem. Uh, obviously, our main concern is preaching the gospel. Um, we're, we're living in a world that's rejected God and rejected the gospel and we've got a, a, an extra importance to, to shed the, you know spread the gospel and to sh- share it with as many people as possible. And anything that hinders that is a problem. So if the church gets bogged down in other issues, that's going to hinder it to some extent. But some of these other issues aren't things that we can just walk away from. The big thing with sharing the gospel is that the, what the world is interested in is how we relate to each other when we disagree with each other. And I think that's the thing that we've got to do in all of this to relate to each other well i want to come back to that in a minute i just want to say something else first i have a a friend who grew up in the roman catholic church and he said to me he said as kids in the roman catholic church we were told that the catholic church must be right and the protestants must be wrong because there's so many different protestant churches and he said then when i became a christian he said i found out why you protestants do uh, have so many differences It's because you think seriously about what you believe. And that's what causes the differences. And there's things that we've been debating about for years Mm. and we've never been able to solve it. Whether baptism should be available to children under the covenant or whether it should be reserved for people who are adults who can make a decision for themselves, we've never solved that problem. So we have different denominations. We can't live together because of governance. We can't live together with a difference of opinion like that. There are other things that we differ on that don't affect governance in the same way. Um, I have good friends and we disagree on things that are important to both of us. One is on the interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation story and what, what that really is. But that doesn't affect the way we operate as a church. And the way we relate to each other as we disagree is important, I think, for our witness to the world. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5 has been a a really important verse to me. It says, um, Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Mm -hmm. And the word moderation is translated in English translations in a thousand different ways. I'll teach a bit of Greek. The Greek word is epiakes, and it only occurs five times in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And one dictionary describes it like this Epiakes is. The way you relate to each other when you have a difference of opinion, okay. and the New English Bible translates it: "Let your magnanimity be known to all men." Now, magnanimity isn't a word we use these days, so that's not a very good translation. But it really hits what the Greek word means. Ma- I don't know any Latin, but I think magnanimity comes from big life. Yeah, magna is big and animi- you know, animus life. Um, so it's that your big heartedness being known to. It. So it's it's about how you agree to differ but resolve to love. I think we're never going to solve this problem of of that we're dealing with about um, ordination of women and women in the eldership. Now, the difference is, with this, ordina- this women's question, is that it does affect the way we operate as a church. We either have women elders or we don't have women elders. I mean, we can agree to have a difference of opinion, but when it actually comes to the structure and the governance of the church, we've got to make a decision. Um, and Alan Stubbs is right. We've got to not let this stop us from demonstrating to the world that we that we love the Lord Jesus and we want other people to know and love the Lord Jesus as well.
0: So it sounds like we weren't magnanimous or, you know, generous with each other then when these debates were happening. Is that, is that a, a well, fair... It's,
1: even when we tro- that that did occur, because we're we we feel strongly about it. It's important to us. We don't just brush it under the carpet. We say we've got to deal with this. Mm-hmm. But we haven't always related well to each other, as we've debated it. I think, mm-hmm. and that's and um, in our human fall, fallen human nature. When we're excited about something, it's hard. To, it's hard not to really. You know, hammer it I, I was I was leading a committee to deal with this whole problem right through the 1990s. We met for 10 years and we didn't have solved the problem and we had to report to the GAA that we couldn't solve the problem. Um, but we had people on the committee of different persuasions and we got on well together in terms of the way we spoke to each other, the way we listened to each other, the way we read what, what each other wrote and we took it seriously. But at the end of the day, we had to give a report and we couldn't, that we differed on what we were putting in the report. But if I get back to how we relate to each other, if I could just say that um, that the first church I went to when I was ordained, there were already women on the eldership. There were already women elders there. And they knew how I felt about it, that I wasn't happy with the church ordaining women to the eldership. That The women knew that, but we got on really well together. I let them do all the things that the elders do. I... I I had to say to myself, if I'm going to be part of the Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church says it's okay for these women to be elders, even if I disagree with it, that's what I've got, and I either leave or I make it work. And so they felt a little bit awkward because of what I believed, but I hope I didn't ever make them feel as if they weren't wanted or they weren't valuable in Mm. what they're doing. And then I went to another another congregation that already had three women elders on it, and when they were wanting to call me, I made it clear what I believed and they knew that. And and again, I worked well. And one of those three women was my most faithful elder and the most helpful elder of all. She was the one who was always at the prayer meeting, always at the Bible study, and she was just wonderful, a single woman, and, uh, and she was such a great help to me and such a great encouragement to me. And we... We could work together, even though she knew what I believed and I I didn't change what I believed. I think that's the sort of thing we've got to try and do. But you can do that at a local church, but it's very hard to do that in the assembly. Alan Stubbs is right, but I'm not sure I'm not sure we could have in hindsight I'm not sure we could have done it differently.
0: Bruce's audio is a little bit garbled here, and then his internet cut and he dropped out of the chat. But to quickly connect to what he's saying next. He explains they couldn't have done it any differently because there were a lot of wounds from a decision they had been lumbered with, the 1974 decision to ordain women that was made when the remaining Presbyterians had left the Assembly and went into the Camberwell Assembly. If you've forgotten or missed that, you need to listen to episode one. Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. And, and it would have been better... If they'd said, if the pre-union church had said, "Let's, this is a major decision that affects the way we operate," why don't we wait till after union to make this decision? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that didn't help our that didn't help the way we, way we dealt with it afterwards because we were already upset about that. We dealt with that emotionally.
0: So, how do we navigate the tension between getting our theology right and proclaiming the good news of the gospel?
1: I don't know, Sylvia. <laughs> There's no silver bullet, but I want to keep trying at it. I'll, I try to make it clear that I'm I'm good friends with people I disagree with um, in terms of our agreement on the gospel to stress the fact that we agree on what the gospel is and how important it is. If if I do, if I really do believe in my heart that the Bible says that God made men and women. Human differently, and he made them to complement each other, and not to be the same. And that ought to be reflected in my marriage and in my church. If that ought to be, if if I think that, if I think that the Bible says that clearly, then it becomes a theological issue that I have a church that operates consistent with what the Bible says.
0: Bruce, earlier you made the observation. That you thought we would never resolve this issue as a church. Where does that come from? Is that just being battle weary?
1: We are battle weary, Sylvia, <laughs> um, and we just we wish it would go away. But I I feel as if I've got to keep standing up for what I believe because no one's convinced me otherwise, and I have. I've prayed, I've tried to keep an open mind, but I haven't been convinced otherwise. And so I've got no choice but to keep trying to get the church to see the things the way I see them. Yeah. Um, but it's not the sort of battle I want to do. I like, I'm like i not built for this. The Lord didn't design me for this sort of thing. Well, in the middle of the Peter Cameron trial, one of my daughters said to my wife, Mum, the trouble with this is Dad isn't even enjoying this. And <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I wasn't, I didn't enjoy it one little bit. I just hope by the grace of God we can keep working together, even if we can't. So, like, we, we were never able to solve the, bapti- the baptism problem. So, we have a Baptist church and we have a Presbyterian church because because that's a governance thing and it's a way that you operate. And so, you've got to have separate denominations. But I don't want to have separate denominations in the Presbyterian church over whether you ordain women or not. So, I, I'm hoping that we can. Keep the gospel alive and encouraging each other not to get weary about the gospel just because we're weary about this battle.
0: Bruce, I, I think that's probably the answer to the question about how do we keep that tension alive. It's not to get weary about the gospel even though we might be weary about these battles.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and where we are agreeing on the gospel to support one another flat out with it and and to demonstrate to a lost world that we support one another. That's what I've tried to do personally, but it doesn't always come across like that in the assembly because I get nervous. And I think the main thing too, Sylvia, is that we stay on our knees and we just keep praying for each other and supporting each other when we disagree and Mm. and, and doing what Alan Stubbs says and keep the gospel to the forefront and make sure that we make that the main thing
0: and and despite the um frust- his frustration about the battles being dis- a st- distraction he said he still had optimism and yes yeah
1: i love yeah i love that i was going to comment on that thank you yeah. yeah and and i'm still optimistic and 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 i think the lord has been good to us in spite of all of these things yeah and it's i think it's helped us to have had these to have to have had these debates and and to force each other force ourselves to love each other while we're doing it we haven't always succeeded at loving each other but when we have it's been helpful
0: and so when the results of the 1988 overture on the ordination of women were brought to the gaa in 1991 by the way the official term for gathering the responses is return to remits it was evident that while presbyteries were divided the state assemblies responded overwhelmingly against the ordination of women to word and sacraments the assembly approved a motion Brought by Reverend Principal Alan Harmon to approve the ordination of men only to Word and Sacrament, with a hundred and sixteen votes for and sixty-five votes against. I know I said I'd gloss over the issue of women's ordination, but I had to mention it, because the two issues were so intertwined. The removal of women from ordained ministry increased the pressure on both camps of the debate in the General Assembly of New South Wales. To either affirm or deny its inclusion of women to the eldership in 1992 the gansw moved forward with their attempts to define or redefine eldership it might be surprising to you but the first overture on eldership that came to the general assembly of new south wales after the 91 gaa decision on women's ordination actually came from members of the assembly who supported the inclusion of women to the eldership. In 1992, an overture was brought to the GANSW from the Presbytery of Bathurst regarding eldership and the courts of the church. The premise for their overture was that the church had not seriously studied the nature and the function of the eldership since 1967. And because of the blurred lines between doctrine and government, and because confusion abounded as to whether the states or federal courts had responsibility for the eldership, they requested the assembly to set up a state committee on order in the church to examine the nature of the eldership and its relationship with the church courts. The committee contained members of a diverse range of viewpoints, but managed to come back in 93 with two different views on the eldership. If you want to read their findings in more detail, uh, make sure you check out the transcript, which you'll find in the show notes. But in summary, they found that there are two prominent approaches to eldership. That while they have basic propositions in common, they move to different conclusions about practices and the authority an elder can have. One model sees the elder and minister as presbyters, both of whom rule in the church courts. I think today we'd call this first model the two-tier model. The elder's ministry is limited, for example, there was no requirement for elders to be able to teach. In fact, those he did would be taking on additional tasks nor were they responsible for the sacraments, which in the Prezi Church are just baptism and communion. The other model is a 1T model, which sees one office in the eldership with all elders or presbyters ruling and some also excelling at teaching. There are some who devote more time than others to teaching, so may be assigned, for practical reasons, special responsibility for the sacraments and the preaching office. The committee noted that both models have long histories and advocates rely on both history and and biblical scholarship to justify their use. They identified a generational shift. The first model, the two-tier model, was known by older ministers and elders, and expectations of the second model were raised by more recently ordained ministers. Their report was received by the assembly, which also approved the production of a booklet on the elder and the church courts as comprehended in the report. The following year, the committee returned to the assembly with an almost completed booklet, but their report to the assembly explained. There has not been unanimity on the committee about all subjects raised, or on the extent of questioning which should be allowed about the functioning of the church courts. However, the committee in general has made considerable effort to accommodate different views for the sake of getting the booklet in the hands of elders and interested church members. The committee was thanked and discharged, and the booklet published and distributed across the state. If you're interested, the booklet titled The Elder and the Church Courts is available at the Ferguson Library. It helpfully spells out the two views on eldership that were outlined in the report the biblical use of terms such as presbyter and overseer, the history of debate on eldership in the Western Reformed tradition, but I couldn't help but notice that there was not a single reference to gender in its 52 pages, a sure sign of the committee's divided opinion on the matter. In 1997, just three years later, another overture came before the General Assembly of New South Wales, asking her to ask the Federal Assembly to give permission to elders set apart by presbytery to perform special pastoral work, including preaching, performing pastoral duties and administering the sacraments, mostly in response to the large number of ministerial vacancies in regional churches. The GANSW was challenging the GAA to allow elders to perform and administer the sacraments, a role that had been tied to the minister's responsibilities, and since 1991, only to men. As I read the blue books in consecutive order, including the booklet by the Order in the Church Committee, I couldn't help but wonder if this overture was a bid to open the pathway for women to return to administering the sacraments. Turns out, it wasn't just me. Some members of the Assembly were concerned that if this overture passed, women would return to performing the sacraments in direct opposition to the 91 GAA decision on ordination. Before the New South Wales Assembly could vote, an amendment was moved. to insert the word male so that the overture will read, male elders set apart. Debate ensued. The competency of the amendment was challenged and the moderator ruled that the amendment was in fact incompetent. The overture did eventually go to the GAA, but with the amendment, ensuring that only a minister could authorise the elder for the sacraments. And all such cases to be duly reported to the Presbytery. This was not the only overture concerning elders that the 97 GANSW considered. The next overture was a preemptive response to discussion that would be had at the GAA just a few months later. The overturists petitioned the Assembly to reaffirm its commitment made at the New South Wales General Assembly in 1969 for women to be eligible to, to be elected to the eldership. The competency of the motion was challenged on the grounds that it was not competent for the assembly to pass a motion that implies it is possible for members of the house not to be committed to the law of the church. The overture could not be passed because it meant that those who would not affirm the ordination of women would be disagreeing with the law of the church, which at their ordination they had vowed to uphold. You see, Those of us in the Presley Church of New South Wales who have taken vows, whether as ministers, licentiates, elders or deaconesses, have signed a document called The Formula, which declares that, in the station given us, we shall assert, maintain and defend the doctrine, worship and government of this church. And so the moderator ruled the motion incompetent. The overture could not pass. Dr Helen Clements, the elder who had stated the overture, asked that the assembly note that the overture had, in fact, been well supported when it reached the assembly clerk, from sessions and other church bodies in 63 pastoral charges, as well as 871 individuals who wrote or supported parish letters. So although the overture was deemed incompetent, the official records would minute the initial support given to the overture. But even that wasn't the end of the debate. Immediately after, another motion was moved by Reverend Dr Ewan Brown. He asked that the Assembly request the GAA to correct the inconsistency that exists about who may be elders in the church and declare that it is a matter of doctrine and government, but the competency of Reverend Dr. Brown's motion was challenged and ruled incompetent. Even so, the exact same issue was debated just two months later at the 97 GAA. An overture was brought by ten members of the Prezi Church in Victoria, who petitioned the GAA to declare that the Bible teaches that godly men are the only lawfully qualified subjects for ordination to the office of ruling elder, and that future ordinations of women to this office would contravene the doctrinal standard of the Presbyterian Church of Australia, and that the General Assembly of Australia directs state assemblies where necessary to bring their practice into line with this declaration. Before the Assembly had opportunity to debate the overture, the law agent, Mr. Simon Fraser, delivered a speech in response to the overture. We've linked the entire speech in the show notes. It's incredibly helpful in understanding the legal foundations of the Prezi Church of Australia, but I've asked Reverend Dr. Paul Logan, former Assembly clerk to help us unpack the speech. Paul, can you help us understand what is the law agent and what is their role in the assembly?
2: Yes, the, every assembly has two legal officers: the law agent and the procurator. The procurator is the church's barrister, and he acts for the church. For instance, uh, after the decision was made about the ordination of women to the ministry, there was a case went to the Supreme Court in New South Wales to overturn that decision. And so the procurator acted for the church in that case. Yes. Uh, the law agent is the solicitor for the church. He does the conveyancing for the church. He advises on matters of civil law, and he briefs the procurator when needed. We're very fortunate. The law agent we've had in New South Wales for over 30 odd years, not that he ha- only has a head for the civil law, but he also has uh, a tremendous knowledge of church history and of the situation in Australia. And, and so he's been. We've been very blessed because of that.
0: Now Fraser refers to the basis of union and the Articles of Agreement. What are these documents and what do they contain?
2: Well, the basis of union contains the doctrinal structure of the church and the of the General Assembly of Australia. And the Articles of Agreement provide for the administration uh, of the church and it deals with the Articles of Agreement, which were revised at the 2001 centenary of General Assembly of Australia, deal with matters of uh, training of students to the ministry, the admission of candidates to the ministry, reception of ministers who come from overseas and from other churches, uh, overseas missions, um, relations with the national bodies of other churches, overseas churches, a national journal, Christian education, chaplains defense the forces and those sorts of issues.
0: The Articles of Agreement deal with the system of government in the church. In his speech, Fraser explains that it is Only in these specific areas where the powers of the General Assembly are supreme that the General Assembly may direct the state churches. When in Article 4 we find that the supreme powers of the General Assembly include doctrine, worship and discipline of the church, the omission of government is deliberate. Paul, why did the framers of the basis of union and the articles of agreement deliberately omit government from the powers of the GAA?
2: Well, I think it largely follows the federation of the nation. Even though the, Australia became a nation on the 1st of January um, 1901, the states uh, state still had their own constitutions. Yeah. And we've had an occasion of this in the last few weeks where the new New South Wales government has amended the New South Wales constitution to ensure the public ownership of water resources. Mm-hmm. And so... There are two points of view. There's one point of view that the federation of the church in 1901, the basis of the union, superseded the the church, the state church constitutions. But the, uh, the other view is that the state church constitutions still stand. And one of the reasons for this is that how governments deal with property and finance and so on differ from state to state. And so in New South Wales, we operate under the Property Trust Act of 1936, and we have uh, trustees, whereas Western Australia has a a different situation, where they have a, a body equivalent to our trustees, but the moderator is chairman, so the chairman changes every year. Whereas in New South Wales, the trustees elect their own chairman, so there's continuity. So there's those sorts of differences. So partly because regulations and the way of dealing with property and so on vary from state to state that the church admitted government. And also because the presbyterial form of church government, for instance, talks about elders and other church governors. It it was a deliberate aim, the church, the state assemblies are still supreme in matters of government.
0: Frasier's greatest concern with the Overture was that it would effectively rewrite the federal constitution of the church. If an issue of government can also be an issue of doctrine because there's a doctrinal element, then would not the same apply to every issue which arises in the church? A church by its nature deals with the things of God. Sometimes these issues might be quite spiritual, other times they might be quite practical. But there is always doctrine involved. If the proposition is accepted, that wherever there is an element of doctrine, then the powers of the General Assembly to be supreme in doctrine immediately applies. Then we have transferred to the General Assembly of Australia supreme powers in the total life of the Church. If the Assembly agreed to the overture, it would be endowing the GAA with expansive, unchecked powers over matters that don't even fall into its jurisdiction, and the precinct would be set the GAA would have powers over the total life of the church. After Fraser's speech, the overture was ruled incompetent. The law agent's speech made it clear that if women were ever going to be excluded from the eldership, it would happen on a state-by-state level. And so, at the 98 GANSW, two related overtures were brought from the presbytery of the Hastings, The first overture, number six, concerning women in the eldership. The overturists outline scriptural basis for their overture, but also legal basis, resting heavily on the law agent's 97 speech by which they were able to determine that the states were not bound to the GAA 1967 decision on women in the eldership, and that states had the power to restrict admission to the eldership to men. The Presbytery of Hastings overtured the Assembly to 1. Declare that only suitably qualified men are eligible to be ordained to the Eldership. 2. Resolve to retain existing women Elders in office. 3. Resolve that there be no further ordinations of women to the Eldership of the Presby Church of New South Wales. and 4. Direct that the Code be amended accordingly. But the overture didn't even get to the vote. The minutes tell us it was moved, seconded and agreed that the overture be dismissed. The second overture from the Presbytery of the Hastings was concerning women serving on assembly committees, overture number eight. The overtures petition the assembly, whereas there is considerable debate within the church concerning the role of women and the Scriptures exclude women from teaching and ruling men in an official capacity in the Church, this would eliminate women from serving as elders on assembly committees. Scripture, however, does allow women to teach and serve in the Church, albeit not as elders. Now, therefore, the Presbytery of the Hastings humbly overtures the Assembly to take these premises into consideration and to 1. Allow each Assembly Committee to co-opt up to four women communicant members of the Church to serve on it, with the possibility of additional women in some cases, and 2. Direct that the Code be amended accordingly. But when their previous overture, the one that bid to remove women from the Eldership, did not pass, this overture was fallen from. That means withdrawn from consideration. And so we move next episode to the 2000s where I hope to cover about 20 odd years of debate bringing us to where we are today. I hope you'll join us. More Than a Cake Stall is a podcast by the Women's Ministry Committee for the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. Season four of this podcast would not have been possible without the incredible help of Sue Pacey and Reverend Bruce Meller at the Ferguson Library. I also want to acknowledge the resources that have been so helpful in compiling information. The book Iron in Our Blood by Mark Hutchinson is an incredible resource in understanding the history of the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales. Lecture notes compiled by Nicole Mannix, who's taught on this topic at Ministry Training Women at Christ College. And also to our very generous interviewees who have given up their time, energy and resources to share their insights and information on these issues. And also to you, our listeners, thank you for giving us the time. We'd love if you would subscribe to our podcast. That'll allow you to hear when the next episode is released.